Welcome to the podcast is dedicated to making you a faster cyclist. The Ask a Cycling Coach podcast presented by Trainer Road. I'm Coach Jonathan Lee here with our head coach, Chad Zimmerman. Hey, everybody. And our CEO, Nate Pearson. Hi. And we are going to answer more of your coaching questions today. You can submit them to us. We go through as many as we can, and then we answer them uh, as many as we can every week. But before we get into the questions, uh, I should follow up for anybody that followed or, or checked Instagram over the weekend and saw what went on on our Instagram page there on the, in the story. You missed out if you didn't follow it. Yeah, no Sorry. doubt. Sorry to bum you out because <laughs> you can't see it any, anymore. The good news is there will be uh, like a kind of a mini documentary, a video coming out about this uh, at some point uh, from the Dune North guys. But um, we kind of diminished the difficulty of it because I would just see these little, you know, they're at 25 miles and they're at 50 miles and they're at 75 miles. And it just seemed like not much is going on. It almost uh, looked easy, updates. except you just see Jonathan go from yeah. enthusiastic Chipper. to a little less so, yeah. to a little less so, to, to <laughs> just like miles, just feet up. <laughs> We're at 180. Yeah. It's raining. So <laughs> we, we uh, had an Everesting ride planned, but a, not a typical one. So it doesn't count like there's a, there's a guy that made a website and pretty much set parameters so that you have to fit into his criteria to have an Everesting ride. And I don't care. I just wanted to ride my bike. And that's what all of us wanted to do. And we had a really cool route. Usually you have to repeat a single segment over and over. Um, but for us, we wanted to use every main road in the San Gabriel mountain range above LA, which uh, if you fly in, it's the giant mountains that you see there. And it was awesome. It was really cool. Uh, we ended up having to change the route because a storm blew in. Um, it was looking like great weather until a day or two before and it shifted on us. And uh, we had, we were up at 7,000 feet and it was snowing on us and hailing and it was like 40, 50 mile an hour winds. At one point I was 6%, going down a 6% grade down. I was in my lowest gear and I was trying not to just like jam and, and go, you know, go above 300 watts. I was trying to stay below that, but I had to go my lowest gear to stay below that 6% downhill because the wind was so crazy. Um, really nuts, but we ended up knocking it out. It pushed the distance up to 222 miles and we climbed 29,039 feet. So 10, 10 feet over, um, technically. And you had to do it in what length of time? Uh, you have to do it within 48 hours, oh, okay. I think, in order for it to be the, the official thing. But we didn't qualify because we didn't have a... It, it took us 25 hours total, um, and it was 18 and a half hours of riding uh, within that. But we didn't... Since we didn't repeat a segment, it didn't count for that thing anyway. But it was with the Due North guys, and that was the first thing. So I learned a lot of things with this. Um, number one, good people. Because when you're going to ride for that long, you better have good people or else it's going to get pretty boring and or annoying, and that, that would be terrible. Um, we had a really good crew. Everybody was awesome, a lot of fun, um, and uh, we kept it light the whole time. Yeah, that's a uh, point to make with anybody considering a relay is choose your, your relay mates carefully. Yeah, Chad, we don't need to get into it, but Chad did that wrong once. I think you, yeah. yeah. Anyway, I don't want to get too detailed into that. I've, I've done it wrong a couple times. times. I've done it right a couple times. So there is a distinct More based difference. on personality than Absolutely. If, if two people are close in speed, go for personality. That, yeah. Uh, yeah. Or even yeah. just That's get great. all personality. I would just, just personality, period. Because, yeah. I mean, you're, you're unless you're out there looking to break records, which, mm -hmm. you know, who does those to break records but one or two teams, you're, yeah. you're looking to have a good time. And that's all based on your company. Yeah. So we had a, a, a girl with us, Ginger, uh, from Machines for Free. Freedom, and she had a huge crash like a week before uh, doing a photo shoot. She was having to sprint and, and her chain snapped and she went down. She was just torn up. She still did That's it. That's a nightmare, by the way. Yeah, right. Oh, Worst nightmare, chain, chain snapping. When you're, oh. um, 
but she still did it. She never complained a single time. Um, she didn't end up finishing the, everyone was like blue hypothermic at one point and she pulled out and it wasn't because of her knee. She was just like, you know what guys I've, I've done, <laughs> done. I feel like, you know, I've climbed 20,000 feet and I know we're close, but that's still 10,000 feet left. I I'm done. So kudos to her for doing that. But sh- her speed was way different than, than mine or, or other people on the, on the ride. But we all rode together, but because everybody was so pleasant and easy to get along with and fun, it, it was it was great. Uh, we didn't have any issues there. So that was awesome. Which bike did you use? I used a um, 2016 Specialized Tarmac Pro Disc UDI2. That's a mouthful. And they hooked you up. Yes. Specialized. Yeah. Thank you. Yes. Paul Connolly from Specialized. Thank you very much for, for setting me up with that. The disc brakes were huge. They were so helpful because, like I said, it was raining on us. It was raining so hard, it was raining up. The rain was just bouncing off the ground, and I was getting rain coming up through the bottom of my glasses. It was were just you, were, brutal. Were you prepared clothing-wise for all of that? Yeah, and that's rain the... Rain and cold? Yeah, you're guiding this along very well, Nate. This is like my bullet points you're going is, through. So... Yeah. Um, <laughs> what I do, man. Move it along. Um, merino wool uh, was what I brought, because I figured if we're going to get wet, that stuff usually dries out quickly, and it also keeps you pretty warm, even if... Unlike a a polyester fabric that if it gets yeah. wet. That's a good point that everyone doesn't know is that wool keeps you warm while it's wet. Yep, it does. So I had, Rafa was was kind enough to send me some arm warmers, knee warmers, and a cap that were all merino wool. And that was awesome. That helped so much. Other people had like polyester ones and they were soaked and cold through that, but I was able to maintain a lot of heat. Who know how many people are like, right now they're going, hmm, Jonathan's job sounds like so much fun, <laughs> but I get cool stuff, but I got to go 220 miles. Yeah. Mm. If, you, if you if you were in my shoes at mile 190, I'm sure it wasn't a lot of fun there, but it was, um, it was good there. So we brought that. I made sure that I brought um, a vest and also uh, I had a jacket. So at one point- Rain jacket or like winter jacket? Rain jacket. And I also had a winter jacket that I used at one point as well. Um, I just brought, and I made sure all this stuff was light and packable, but I, I made sure to bring layers so then I could change if out. If you have a follow vehicle, I mean, bring everything yeah. you have. Yep, which we yeah. did, which was awesome. And it had a giant light bar. It was like a, a, apocaly- like a zombie oh, apocalypse cool. van. <laughs> so it was all big and lifted and it was behind us and they turned on the light bar. So we were able to save our lights. Um, another thing there on lights is, um, I had jet lights, uh, they don't exist anymore. It's kind of a bummer, but they make, they made really good lights and they don't sell them anymore. Yeah, true. Yeah. <laughs> they yeah. Exist. <laughs> they exist. Um, but they have replaceable lithium ion batteries. So I had three of those charged and each battery was claimed to last six hours on low. And I got seven and a half hours on one battery switching constantly. Every time there was a descent, I would turn it on high, but anytime I was climbing, I would put it on low because you don't need it. And it lasted seven and a half hours. Yeah, we used great. those in that Rockwell relay, and I was super impressed with them. They were great. Yeah, yeah really Bummer. good lights. So too bad for everyone's going to try to buy them now. <laughs> yeah, I know, right? Yeah, they're really good. But it's a plug regardless, for a company that's out of business. Yeah, the the goal, I guess, with lights is bring something that you can uh, you can charge. I brought uh, also X Lab makes these torpedoes. They're called. They're like a, a bottle, but they don't. They fit in your bottle cage, and it's made to like hold your stuff, like the They're specialized kind of like a saddle bag in a bottle. Yeah, it's yep. a little storage container. Yeah, and then I had an anchor, a really big uh, ex- uh, external battery pack in there, and you put that on your bike. I did. That's a extra weight for climbing. It is, but my Garmin, I had to charge my Garmin seven times. I have an Edge five twenty, and it is a lemon of all lemons. So. It kept my Garmin going, but I kept passing that thing around to other people because their lights would be dying, and it was great. It kept them going. So, um, so that was one. Do you even have to recharge that anchor one because it's a big 
better never back. did and so, it char- it was charging people for 12 hours while you're on that long ride what food did you like and what did you not like so we tried to bring as much real food as we could so we made two different rice cakes from scratch labs bacon egg brown sugar and rice was one that was delicious yeah. um the other one was i think it was like uh dates um almonds and cranberries or something. It was really good. Um, good. Did someone else make that one? Uh, yes. Yeah. yeah. Um, and we, we made those and brought those. We also made pe- peanut butter and jelly, which was awesome. Uh, brought potato chips. Those are great. They're just salt, fat, and, and carbs, right? It's, it's easy. And then we did bring like some normal like uh, bars and stuff like that too for people, but hardly anybody touched that. We almost exclusively sucked real food. I brought jerky and that was my 150 mile plus treat. I knew that if I got after 150 miles, I would allow myself to have the jerky, which was really nice. And then we, all of us used scratch labs um, for the, for hydration. And we forced ourselves, even when scratch didn't taste, you know, sound like it tasted that good, we forced ourselves to keep drinking that. Any idea of how many calories you ate? Uh, or was I, it kind of a blur? Yeah. So I, I know a lot of guys, I bet, finished off positive. They ate so much. <laughs> then, And it was hard. Nobody wanted to eat, but we just kept forcing ourselves. We did a really good job of making sure that, like, everybody was kind of not, not policing each other, but everyone was trying to keep everyone in check just to make sure nobody was losing it and falling behind mentally or anything. And I think I came out negative on the calories. Um, How many kilojoules was the whole? 9,000 or 8,900 or no, 9,002 kilojoules was, was what I burned. Wow. So it's quite a lot. And then 597 TSS was where I was at. 500? Wow. Yeah. 597. That's a lot. That's a big that's day. A big that's day. A big, that's like a whole week. Yeah. You do that once a week. Yeah. yeah but that's one, a nice big week. Yeah. One thing that I learned with this was, uh, so I looked at best bike split beforehand and it said 178 is what I should hold for a normalized power for that whole thing. Granted, best bike split is not designed to break down a 24 hour ride. It's designed to break down shorter time trials or bike splits on a, on an uh, Ironman course. So but I looked at that and I thought that's actually pretty reasonable because that's just above 0.5 IF and I should be able to maintain that. We ended up doing 0.52 I, or yeah, 0.502 IF. So wow. right there. Um, and it's felt so slow in the beginning and so easy. And it was exactly what we needed to do. How'd it feel at the end? It felt, it was interesting. So we, we had to cut off a portion of the ride because it was too, it was just the weather was too crazy. And we were thinking of repeating Mount Wilson uh, but the weather came in there really strong and we had to get down into the Valley. So we ended up in Pasadena and we had to open up Strava or wait for the storm to, to leave, use the radar for that. And then open up Strava to try to find a steep and short climb that we could lap to get in the elevation. We had come that close. We needed it. Um, so at that point we found one and I was able, after that we did, I think it was 20, like 20 something repeats on that, um, uh, high amount of repeats on this last one. And I was able to do nine of those at the end, the final nine, I was doing them at threshold. Um, Dylan uh, Nord was right there with me and he was just like, man, it's so much easier if you just focus on hitting a number and trying hard instead of counting down 10 to go, nine to go, you know, and just like, let's just hit that. And it was great. And I felt just fine. Um, my joints were, were pretty worked. Like I, I have numbness in my hands right now um, and it's spreading, but hopefully it starts to go down. I think that's just nerve issues from being on the bars. So Sounds long. like workman's comp. <laughs> yeah, yeah, right. <laughs> Plant the seeds. Yeah, and then yeah. Uh, um, my knee. Uh, it, interestingly, I thought my knee, uh, my left knee has been giving me a huge amount of problems. That's the one that's kept me off the bike this year. 
I've done so much work on it and I haven't actually put it to the test with a longer than 100 mile ride. I've been nervous to do that. My left knee is totally fine. It's great. Um, so good job on the PT there, the, the PTs that I work with, but my right knee on the other hand is it's not it band issues. I just, I, I mean, that was a lot of pedaling and it's, it's swollen like crazy, but it's getting better. So, um, one thing yeah. too, your guys' intensity was so low going back to the food. Mm-hmm. I would have real, especially that long of a ride, stop at Popeye's or something, get <laughs> right. some chicken. Cause you're, you're low enough where it, it shouldn't have a huge effect on your, right. on your stomach. Yeah. You can probably yeah. still digest working at half of your functional threshold. Yeah. I didn't have the normal GI distress issues that you would have after doing a long ride like yeah. that because but just like a different, lower. like. Because just what you described are rice cakes the whole time. and mm-hmm. uh, Easy the, to digest. But still, I would get sick of them after 25 hours. Getting some like really kind of junky food that's, but also has some protein in it, like a Popeye's or what Boston Market sandwich would be good. Or, Something like that. Basically, you're working at like, hungry. like a touring intensity level. Totally. I mean, you just did it for 25 straight hours, whereas yep. people who tour or what, yeah. 8, and 10, People hours. drink wine and do that. Yeah, <laughs> sure. and, and yeah. Now, so. I, now I understand how people ride across the country or do these intercontinental rides, whatever they might be. It's When you ride at that pace, um, you may not think initially that you could hold that pace forever. You really can. And... I also noticed afterward, and this is just the mirror test, right? And the pinch test on the stomach, but uh, a visible decrease in fat. Um, the abs are much more defined, I guess you would say. Uh, that sounds very egotistical, but you know what I mean. I, I burned. No, it um, I burned a lot of. I burned a lot of fat through that, and it was very apparent. And I should have because that's where I was, oh. and uh, it was apparent. So um, that was that was awesome. Do you have a plan up? Just ride 25 hours in a row. <laughs> right. <laughs> Guaranteed. 9,000 calories. Um, trying to think of a few. Other, oh, I didn't use chamois cream once. So I was going to say, so let's talk about your, your saddle comfort and your neck. Yeah. Specialized tope saddle uh, or tope or toupee, however you want to call it. You've been um, using that for years. Uh, yes. Absolutely yeah. love it. It works great for me. Um, I use that saddle. By the way, that works horribly for me. Inch, just, yeah. Yeah. So yeah. just everyone knows it's, it's, we've talked about this before, but saddles are so individual, usually subjective. Yeah. Yep. And I didn't have a single bit of saddle soreness at all, like no rawness, no anything, which is huge for me. I was using a kit from Angelus creative. They're the ones that made the do North kits for us. And I was really apprehensive about that because I usually get saddle sore when I look at kit that isn't like perfect. Yeah. A brand um, new kit for a 220 mile ride. Yeah. Yeah. It's never worn. Yeah, it's risky. pretty, pretty risky. And it paid off though. It was, it was great. There were no issues. Uh, it was a great chamois. So, um, I was really impressed. I thought that it would be terrible. What about on. your neck? Cause I think that would hurt me the most is my neck. And I was afraid of that too. Neck and shoulders that always starts to really hurt on me, but we spent so much time standing and uh, climbing out of the saddle mm-hmm. that I think that, and I made sure that I regularly altered position when I would thought for a while, I was like, man, I'm sitting for a while. I should get out of the saddle and ride for a bit. I tried to alter that regularly. And that, I think that really helped. And on top of that, the intensity is not that high. So yep. it's not like you're carrying a bunch of tension, gassing it, trying mm-hmm. to stay low out of the wind. I mean, it's a different effort level. It really easier is easier to stay relaxed. Yeah. So, um, see, so yeah, I noticed that that wasn't a big issue at all. Um, it was great. Um, in fact, I, I didn't have much soreness there. My triceps afterward, it was like I did a plank for 25 hours, you know, like my triceps were worked and, and my shoulders and everything else there. But that was just from the, from everything there. My gearing, I had a compact crank set. Um, so 50, 34, and then an 11, 28. Ideally, I would have had all the way down. So one of the guys had a subcompact, so 52, 36, 
and he um, got an 1136 cassette and used the Wolf Tooth. Uh, they make an adapter that basically, you don't, you don't have to get a new long cage derailleur. It just drops your derailleur down more. It's like a little thing you put into your hanger, and it works great. And he was on Dura-Ace DI2, and it worked just fine. So, and he had a 36, and he was just spinning and enjoying it the whole time. So, um, it's, it's so huge, too, based on your weight mm. on something like that with your gearing. Yeah. And your and your power to weight ratio. It really like, is. Because Jonathan and I will be going next to each other, and I'll be putting out 280 watts, and he'll be like, "I'm at 220." Yeah. Like the the climb we did the in Hawaii. Yeah. That was the difference. Crazy. Yeah. yeah. 60 and watts. Along those lines, that's one thing. Uh, two things that I would change, I guess, going back through it. Um, uh, first is a lighter bike. Um, I would love, to, like, if I was to do something like this again, I would really build my bike out specifically to be a very good climber. So I have SRAM Red on my on my on my road bike, and it's so light. And question I really for like you. That, so, since I uh, segue, yes, okay, I bought yeah. a new bike. Ooh, yeah. yeah. <laughs> Avenge Vias S Works mm-hmm. comes in December. Mm-hmm. So the reason why I got that is because of the. I am believing in the aerodynamic benefit, mm. and I got the CLX 32s with that bike, um, part of a team, so we get a, a big discount. I'm also going to get a set of flows, too, and have different tires on it. I think yeah, I'm, after our discussion with the flow guys, I'm a big believer in aerodynamics versus weight. Yeah, me too. Me so too. The, the CLX is I'm going to run the, the specialized turbo... They have like a turbo tubeless one. It's the Pro or I don't I forget. It's a yep. hundred dollar tire, which is really annoying. It <laughs> tests uh, a bunch of independent tests. It tests just as fast um, as the GPS GP four thousand S two. Yeah, but you can run tubeless, which mm. is a big benefit for me. Nice. And then also you can um, that tire is designed for that wheel. Yes, which is important, as yep. the flow guys pointed out. Yeah, and I'm actually going to get just so I don't have to switch my. Um, I'm going to get other sets with. Uh, flow for cyclocross I'm, I'm gonna have three sets of wheels <laughs> yeah but they'll all be interchangeable between two bikes exactly with yep. disc brakes depending on what i what i'm doing that's so super sensible and then exactly yeah that's what i like to hear <laughs> that's why i'm getting them <laughs> three carbon yeah three sets of carbon wheels is very sensible very sensible yeah but, so i'm gonna e-tap my this is what my question is i was looking to get e-tap hmm. how is the weight compared to sram red so i e-tap is heavier but I think that it's heavier by 80 grams or something like that. What about when you I take could be the wrong, cabling out? I thought it was it's pretty close when you take the cabling out. I mean, that's a good point. The batteries certainly are heavy, though, on those things, you know, because they're lithium-ion yeah. little batteries. It's a negligible difference, though. But if it's 80, exactly, 80 grams, I find that to be negligible. Yeah. The UDI2 stuff that I used was heavy. One, one thing, too, that I really disliked about, this is the first time I've ridden DI2 for a long time, I had gloves on, like thick gloves, and I misshifted every single time I went to shift because you just, it's so hard when you have a thick glove on to feel between that when you have two buttons like that. Yeah. It's just kind of a. An ETAP a mess. doesn't have that. An ETAP so doesn't. For the US people, that's 0.17 pounds. Hmm. That's probably the difference. That's fine. Nothing to worry I about. I think, yeah, you probably fluctuate that within an hour anyway with yeah. your body yeah. weight. But anyway, too, I got, the, like I got that aerodynamics bike because the way that I race, I'm not going to, I'm not going to win hill climbs. Yeah. And the, I don't like to sprint in, a, in like a bunch sprint. So the way I'm going to race is breakaways um, either early on in the race or with, you know, four laps to go or something like that. And that is the kind of bike that I would think would be better than something like a, a tarmac that's a lighter um, Well, really, unless you're going to spend a ton of time going uphill, aerodynamics is going to trump 
They're really lightweight. Yeah. And, and like even, it's that threshold of 13 miles an hour. Yeah, roughly, 13, 14. It depends on the, on the, but even then the you got to look at climb. what the rest of the course entails. I mean, if it's mm-hmm. just a hill climb time trial, then yeah. That, and, that and also if you have a headwind, then yep. that's also yeah. aerodynamics comes into place. So and I got more. the disc version too mm. of the bike. Um, nice. We're talking about switching wheels. One, so I can switch wheels. Two, because we have a lot of descents here that uh-huh. can use disc brakes. So before I wouldn't go down Mount Rose because you have to use your brakes so much. And I was worried about popping and, a tire. And, and while that may be a valid concern for most people, it definitely is for Nate because Nate's a lot bigger he weighs more he's taller fatter rides a big bike he's on the brakes a lot too and he actually actually does heat up the rims it does to the point where he's burst tubes before yeah so that's and that's stuff that for a guy like me that is smaller we don't we don't have that issue (laughs) we don't have that (laughs) issue quite as much so yeah and and then the what was the last issue just better braking performance and the weight difference specialized heads about the same weight and then uh the frame's actually lighter on the disc and then for aerodynamics, they say it's a one, on average, one watt less. Hmm. So I'll take the one watt to break a little bit later and always be confident in my brakes. For the disc brakes versus calipers. Yeah. And something on a ride like this, for, um, at the end, there everybody, you know, it's cold and everything else. They've been on their brakes for a long time because they did a lot of uh, descending you know, as well as ascending. And everyone that didn't have disc brakes was just their hands were killing That's them. another real you have big to pull concern. Hard. And in cold weather. I mean, I've had times where hard. I've come down rows in snow, mind you, to the point where I couldn't actuate my brakes. Mm-hmm. My, my hands were just too frozen up. But if I had disc brakes and all I had to do was put like a finger's worth of pressure into it, it, would have been a different day. I never used more than one finger on my brakes. And I never even pulled hard enough to where I would need to like reposition my hand or anything. Just barely, just a finger on there. That's the that's the great thing about disc brakes is that you get with so much, you don't have to pull very hard and it's just nice and easy and you get a lot of power and modulation through there. I know that's a lot great. of people are poo-pooing disc brakes. A lot of people are. Yeah. And I think it's just... Because they know, haven't used them? And yeah. they were... Uh, yeah. You know, they think it's a weight penalty, which on the Venge it's not. And, and they or think an it's arrow a penalty. Arrow penalty on the Venge it's not. So if you don't have those two reasons and then they just say you don't need them, but... That's that's not a valid argument, right? Yeah, just saying, like you I, don't need them. It's just like, better. Like why yeah. wouldn't Give it you three want years better? You're probably going to see nothing but discs. Yep. Yeah. Exactly. Well, two, right. And the bike industry wants to sell you all new wheels and new bikes. Yep. And <laughs> Which makes sense, you know. Um, so and sorry to bring it back to this, but the last point uh, that I would change. So the first was just having a lighter bike. Number two is steeper climbs. Um, so we did. Glendora Mountain Road, uh, Glendora Ridge Road. We climbed up Baldy. Uh, we did Crystal Lake. Uh, we rode along a, a bunch of different uh, big climbs up there. And thinking back, and all of us kind of agree, we were like, man, we should have just done the steepest of the steep climbs. Because you you kind of, when you're trying to keep your power that low, you kind of flatten out, like you top out with your gearing, and you're just going at whatever speed you are anyway. And if we were on a steeper climb, we'd just be creeping along, but we'd be able to accumulate that stuff, you know, a little easier and drop that's, down quicker. Yeah. That's what I said. Remember, yep. I said just yeah. one really long climb. Yeah, yeah, that's and that would be ideal. Maybe the guy who set long. the rules actually knew what he was doing. What's that? <laughs> Maybe the Everesting guy who set the rules knew what was. Oh, up. he certainly does, right? Yeah, but at the same time, if we had just done one route like that or one road, would have been a whole lot less entertaining. This was some. This was an adventure. We had closed roads that we rode on. 
uh, for six miles. It would have been awesome. a boring video. Oh, yeah. Totally. It would have been a boring endeavor, really. Yeah, it really would have been. So four out of the six of us finished. Uh, that's pretty good. And uh, check out, we'll have more stuff on this, I'm sure, on Instagram soon uh, from, from us. And then Do North, that's D-E-U-X-N-O-R-T-H. Uh, you can find them on different social channels and on their website. And eventually, I'm not sure when, but there will be a video and everything else coming out. So it was awesome. I learned a lot. And pacing is the biggest takeaway I had. So you can pace easily. Um, let's go into the first question from Red Running Bear on Instagram. She says, how do you stop without breaks? And that's terrifying. <laughs> she, um, and I'm summarizing what she posted in here. She says, serious question. I forgot to re-engage my brakes and I put my bike back together and flew off the road. Is there anything you can do in that moment of panic? This is the Halloween episode Worst of Train fear. Road. Yeah, right. Worst fear right Breaking there. Breaking chains and brakes not working. So oh. in this situation... She put her bike together wrong, and both brakes didn't work. Yeah, and and this can happen um, if you have disc brakes, for example, and somebody spread the pads out when they were working on it, and then you get back on, and the mechanic didn't do their due diligence and pump the brakes back up. You can pull that and get little to no braking power. If you have Which, cantilever brakes and you've had to take your wheel off, you probably disconnected the cable, you have nothing. And if you switch rim widths, because I've done that. Yep, rim widths. Or if you have like a lot of travel, you know, a long pull with your levers, right. and then somebody has flipped up the cam release lever on your rim brake, and you go to use that, then you're probably not going to get much yeah, brake. There, there are more scenarios than you probably think, which oh, will God. lead to having no or very little brakes. I was talking to Jonathan about this. This goes through my mind all the time. I'll be like in bed, and I'm like, okay, your brakes don't work. <laughs> what do you do? It's like, you know, if there was a fire right now, what are my exits? Okay, so so, so what do you do? Uh, you know, we were talking about this, and I thought back to uh, if anybody has seen the 80s BMX movie yep. Rad. Yep. Were you thinking the same thing, Chad? Yep. Yeah. Um, so back in the day with, like, Flatland Tricks, when you didn't have a front brake on your BMX bike, you put your foot or your shoe on the back side of the front tire. So we're in between the front tire and the down tube, the underside of the yeah, down you tube. Very carefully wedge it there. Yep. First off, you can kind of do it with the back wheel, much trickier, safer, but well, kind of safer in terms of how you'll stop. It's maybe not to, in terms of body position. Yeah, And it's easy to catch your foot in the spokes in the back compared mm -hmm. to in the front because you can't see it in the back. Um, and you're kind of just dangling it back there. So I would take my foot and I would slowly, and I would, I would press it onto the backside of that tire, so not your, try to wedge it. But would your toe be up and your heel down or would you do yes. it kind of sideways? Yep. Because yeah, so, uh, if you do it sideways on a road shoe, you've got, I mean, like your cleat should be, stuck, it should right? help you. Yeah. But if you were to do it sideways on a road shoe, I could see it getting. Yeah, so would you be pushing your, like your cleat and your toe? Yeah, I would just be gent and very gently because if you push too hard, it's just going to rip your foot forward. Yeah, and then if it gets stuck, then you're going to face plant. Yeah, and I think yeah. we should mention now, there's no real clean solution here. Definitely like, not. <laughs> this is no, this will not be pretty. <laughs> no. So I've always, I've always thought that I would unclip and kind of put my feet on the ground. Maybe, yeah. but if you're and then if you got any speed and you got cleats and pla or carbon soles, that's not a whole lot of traction. And I then know, if so it does just... catch, it's going to tear you off the bike. Well, I think about those guys in like Saudi Arabia that do that where they put their shoes out and they kind of glide. <laughs> I've seen that. And yeah. I would I would put it on my toes and then try to put more and more pressure on it. I bet they have rubber soles though. I just don't see that working with a plastic bottom shoe. Yeah, it could be pretty slippery. I think rubber would be worse. I think a plastic would be better because you oh, want some slipping. And then you just want to try to dig it in. I more. don't know how you nah, be able to slow down. Based like on my years of riding the, the other BMX, thought as a kid. would be when we go down these big things, big descents. I'd be like, because there's a lot of cars, try to grab onto a car, <laughs> something. Like, yeah, they're, they're, there's jerks. They'd probably just like drive away. Think you're doing something also, bad. Also, in this case, she had grass. Um, she went into grass. Thank goodness. Uh, there was a curb. I think she hit that, and then she landed in the grass. If I see a curb next to me that is not 
perpendicular to my, to the direction in which I'm traveling, but that I could hit and it would wash my wheels out and there's grass on the other side. I would do that as well. That's where I would aim for. That's the other thing I think of if, if, if there's grass, if because I, if I can, cause you can't on a motorcycle, you can low side fairly easily, but you usually need brakes to do that. If you're going to hit something, you low side. So basically that means that you lean the bike so that you lock up the back tire and that lets your back end slide out and you just land on your side and you slide. In this case, if you don't have brakes, obviously that's not possible. And if you try to lean over on a bicycle like that, it's going to high side you and it's probably going to be even worse. Perhaps. Yeah, it could be pretty, but if you hop and land sideways, that's going to be, yeah, then you're gonna, oh, you're going to high side so hard. So I would look for, um, something like if there's a curb and it's on a turn, that would be ideal because then you're trying your slowing down tactic, whatever that is. And then if you can come up to that curb and kind of hit it sideways a bit, and then yeah. you could fall into the grass. I don't like this oh. conversation. The, no, what you got to do to first check your brakes before you go yes. anything fast. Well, yeah, that's that's the moral. Of and her, that's, that's the what I do too, I think about this before I do any descent. At the top of the descent, check your brakes, make sure they work. Yep, and if I they do don't work, I do too. Crash immediately. Yes. Right. Don't try to like. Oh, think about it. Just <laughs> fall down. Yes. Like when you're going ten miles per hour. Do your yeah. yeah. Do your best to. You'll fall be okay down. if you could fall at ten it's miles. Per better hour. than falling at forty. Yep. Yeah. Um, so yeah, I, I check my brakes before every descent. I always do. And yeah, it's honestly, not anytime I do a, a long climb and we get to the top and it's a, you know, on an out and back sort of thing, we're just going to come back down. I check my tire pressure, check my brakes. Yep. Yeah. And it's, and you can even check your tire pressure and we're, this isn't scientific, but look down at your tires and bounce your weight a bit. Oh, that's all I'm talking about. Yep. I don't whip out a pressure gauge or anything. I just, <laughs> yeah. I just grab yeah, them yeah. and feel if they're the, still the other nice thing and firm. I do, yeah. like I just went on a, a long ride this weekend and people grouped up at the top. I take my uh, gloved hand and I, brush off my tire really to make sure idea. there's no glass on it. Really and I kind of clean it all the way around and look for anything like that. Cause I don't want to blow out. Although no, two blisters, a little yeah. bit better. Seriously. Yeah. So I'm glad to hear you're okay. That's pretty scary. Uh, let's move on to Nathan's question. Great name. And hopefully we gave you some tips instead of just terrifying everybody, but you never know. So um, let's, uh, Nathan says, hi guys, five stars for the podcast. He says he downloaded iTunes just to rate yes. it. Yes. That's commitment. Nice. And five stars for the app in the Google Play Store. Thank you. Sweet. We can use more of that. I'm new to Trainer Row, but I've listened to all the podcasts back to back over the last few weeks. Today, I got halfway through Goddard. That's one of our workouts for those that don't know. And my form-based workout. Mm-hmm. And my battery died on my laptop. Uh, he says he left his charger at work. During the start of the workout, the instructions take you through the single leg drills, which I started but stopped. And this is why he says, I have a four. I, 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 you just four call I? It four I. Okay. Four I, <laughs> four I precision, which is a single sided power meter, similar to a stages with my right foot unclipped. The power increased with the left foot unclipped. The power showed zero, which makes sense. It's just measuring on that one side. Both of these meant that I couldn't pedal to the power required. So I didn't bother and just spun out with both legs. Is there any way that I can make these drills worthwhile or, or alternatively, is there a way to filter out workouts that contain individual leg drills? Okay. So there's no way to filter them out. And really there's no reason to bypass them just because you're not getting power data. doesn't make them unvalid or invalid. You're still deriving the benefit of the drills, but you're just not recording any power. So whether or not you're making the, ta- the power targets during those efforts, it doesn't, uh, like I said, negate that the benefit of the drills themselves. So, you know, especially if you know, you need to work on form drills, don't skip them just because you have a one-sided power meter. There's, they're still fully worthwhile. I usually skip them. Well, if you don't want to do them, don't do them. But yeah. I'm saying if your only reason not to do them is because you're not meeting target power, it's not a good reason. So I'm saying too I, I is he doesn't, he doesn't have to ignore 
all those workouts. Like if you don't right. like doing single leg drills, just don't, don't do them. Do them. Yeah. All, that, yeah. goes, that goes with all the drills. I mean, they're like uh, sprints intermixed. And I mean, if yep. you're doing traditional base for rehab and a sprint crops up, definitely don't do it. I right. mean, use common sense. The meat yeah. is the power base part. Yes, and certainly. And this that's is a little bit of gravy on icing it. on the cake. And if you really want the most out I of like your gravy training, on the meat today, <laughs> yeah, gravy on the meat. That sounds good. Um, and, and also you'll want to turn off play pause, uh, your workout with cadence, if that's the case, uh, um, you should still get cadence. I think even with one leg, yeah, drill. he still should. Yeah, oh, so well, fine. Turn in the cranks. What if the power meter measures zero force? Would it pause? No, I think we'll still do cadence because it measures speed. Yeah, or, it's accelerometer. It still yep. thinks it's around. Cool. Around. So if if it if it does that, then you should be good. If it doesn't for some weird reason, then you and if it pauses your workout, then that would be why. Uh, you would just need to turn that that feature off there, which you can. So. Uh, Simonson 77, he's from Instagram as well. That's not his, his God given name. That would be strange. Uh, first off, love the podcast. <laughs> Thanks it's for a, clarifying. Yeah. He, he just, <laughs> I'm always here for you, Chad. First off, love the podcast. It's a great compliment to trainer road, which I've been using for nearly three years. I'm mostly a triathlete and sometimes a road racer. This year I branched out into mixed surface riding or gravel riding Fun. And, th- and that led me to my first mountain bike. He's, he's at the happiest he's ever been. I bet. Cause he's on a mountain bike. The podcast has been huge in piquing my interest, uh, for more off-road stuff. My question, what kind of data do you capture on your mountain bike? I'm kind of thinking nothing or maybe just capturing heart rate and GPS with my watch thoughts. Ooh, you're asking Thanks. the wrong guys here, Simon. It's me, me especially, but I'm sure this applies to all of us. I always capture as much data as possible, regardless of what I'm doing, whether or not I train by that data or put it to any use at any point, I want to have it. Mm. Yeah. Uh, power. Power is so huge. We've ta- talked about this a long time about us bringing outdoor rides. Mm-hmm. The project starts mm-hmm. today of engineers starting today on it. So as people don't know, things take a long time, but, um, we are, yeah. So we're going to go as quickly as possible, but it has to be good. So I don't want people to, and it's not going to be a month, you know, when when it gets done. And I want to dispel a myth right here with this one. Um, I hear it all the time. And in fact, I get questions about it constantly, like through my social channels and stuff. Um, I just did a big feature on my bike and I had seven people ask me, why do you have a power meter on your mountain bike data or power data is pointless on a mountain bike. And that is not true. Uh, not true at all. Um, that was for some reason, uh, kind of like the understood thing for a long time. Can't imagine why. Totally false. Um, your power is just as applicable on a mountain bike as it is on any other bike. And so I, if you don't have a power meter, here's what I track on the, on the bike. I track my heart rate and I track my GPS location, just like you put in there, Simonson, that that's what I would use. Um, just because basically I want to know where I went and then heart rate usually gives me some indicator roughly of intensity. Right. And those are the two things that matter to me. And from a coaching perspective, perspective, I'd recommend, uh, basically power and cadence above all else. Cause, mm-hmm. uh, especially if you're planning to do any sort of file analysis, you can actually put those two things together, see what sort of demands your courses or your, your uh, events require. And there's a lot of useful information to be gleaned from just those two metrics. Yeah. And, and normalized power, uh, mountain biking is a great case for the importance of normalized power uh, due to the constant fluctuations that you have in, in power output due to the course, because you're, whatever you're riding on is much more variable than a road. So normalized power is what I use in terms of power. And then I'm tracking all the other stuff, TSS, IF, um, all that stuff. So normalized power being, it, it kind of gives you what your average power would be if you rode steady. So if you rode sporadic, your average power might be very low, even though you did a lot of like really hard efforts, normalized power kind of gives you an average that you compare between workouts. For me, um, the things that I want to look at and for our product are PRs, 
Because mm-hmm. if I do a new power PR in any kind of duration, yeah. that shows that I am g- improving, which is another like a, it's a good check to make sure, yes, I am really improving. That's one thing on that really quick. Uh, I noticed a friend of mine the other day put up a snap and it was him like anal- trying to analyze his performance and see where his PRs were. And he's a very good cyclist. And it's, it's like, that is something that is so important and riders should always know where they're at on the durations that apply to their racing. Like it was tough for him to find, but in this case, hopefully we can make that easier. Right. That's like one of our goals, because if you're doing cyclocross racing and you know that, you know, laps are generally somewhere around five minutes on a, on a course, you want to look at your power, uh, and from the whole duration of the race, but all the way down to five minutes, or maybe even less, you want to be looking at that. If you're an Ironman athlete, probably different durations, but if you know your PRs and what you can stick at, that's Cross helpful. Might be a, that might be a different yeah, argument. Yeah, not so much, but there are, you know, you, there are very specific durations to specific events. Yeah. And, and watching that power, you know, not just focusing on FTP all the time, but watching those particular power to uh, duration rate. When uh, you put your gravy on your meat. <laughs> that's it. <laughs> so like, uh, okay. But More I, of I that. Think of, I think of one race here, Boca Road Race, where there's about a two and a half yeah. minute climb. Uh, we call the... Yeah, it's uh, it's longer. Yeah, it's is like, it two and a half minutes? It's a four or minute climb. It's four minute climb. Yeah. No, no, it's like two and a half minutes. Three to four. Really? All yeah, the way maybe to the top? for you, Jonathan, but for Chad and I, <laughs> it's two and a half. <laughs> Anyways, that is the decisive moment in that yep. race, and it's very uh, the, the race happens a few times a year, and there's two really hard efforts, and then not not the most decisive, but a lot of well, you get dropped. Probably the most decisive. Yeah, yeah. I mean, a lot out of, of the whole race, that is the most de- yeah. decisive place. So. Being able to do a two minute and thirty second. Yeah, honestly, effort. you could have reasonable fitness across the board, but if you're super good at two to three minutes on on a course that requires exactly that, you stand a far better chance of faring well. Yeah, so knowing your bests or your PRs for different durations is very important, um, and especially if you can look at a course ahead of time and see, okay, that climb should take me roughly this long. Then, and I'm talking looking way out ahead, then uh, maybe you pick, for example, the, the build plan that works for that or the specialty plan will specifically focus on that. So. And I always like, too, though, I, I just use PRs as a way to, if I see I get new PRs every ride, I'm, I'm so like, happy. I'm getting stronger, I'm getting stronger, I'm getting stronger. It's like a win for me. If I see a power yeah, a PR. Win. Small wins along the way, yeah. 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 Super important. Because yeah, yeah. you can get a power PR without an FTP Im- improvement, mm-hmm. which is. Yep. And, nice. and many times I've even lost a race and, and you can lose a race for so many different reasons, right? Uh, just like you can win a race for so many different reasons, but I come out with a power PR and that yeah, race I, is I to- agree. totally successful, right? That's uh, all night chases. Yeah. <laughs> power PRs. <laughs> Ouch. Just gasses the first minute and then slips off the back. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, so let's go into, um, yes. Uh, Joe's question it says, Hi, great podcast. Very motivational. Really like hearing about the, your specific experiences and challenges. This is my second year of using trainer road. Last year I did some workouts, but did not focus on a structured training plan. This year I'm in week five of sweet spot based low volume one. Good job, man. And he says, it's going great. My question, I am collecting data from my workouts, uh, power, heart rate, speed, and cadence, but not sure what analysis I should be doing after my ride. So this is tying into what we were just talking about a bit. You talk about assessing improvement by measuring FTP, but are there more signals in my data to investigate? Hey, here we are. Again, assessing, last week. But assessing variation or consistency of power or cadence. Any way to get more frequent assessment or improvement via heart rate with respect to power between FTP tests? 
Other analysis you would suggest? Uh, thanks, Joe. So Joe, what so stuff Joe, we've, we've all got input on this. Let me just kick uh, this off by saying um, there's a common saying. Uh, it goes with coaching for sure, but a lot of things. In the, what gets measured gets managed. So what's important to you? I mean, that those are the things that you need to track. It doesn't matter. If it's uh, not FTP, if it's something that matters to you, could be could be weight, could be improving your cadence, could be watching your relationship of heart rate to particular power outputs, whatever it is, it, it's up to you to decide. We track FTP, but that doesn't mean it's the only thing worth tracking. Hmm. So one thing about power to heart rate is, especially I notice a lot with me, is it'll change workout to workout and what week I am in a training plan. Um, it changed ton. during this, Ever, this Everest ride too. We all noticed oh, yeah. like we're kind of capped our heart rate won't really go up that much, yeah. you know, it's so, and, but it would, I mean, if you, if you go to like kind of the, the thought, Joe Friel has this thought where you had a low heart rate and high power, you got more fit, which isn't the case in yeah, that. And yeah. so what'll happen, it's not is, as simple as that. Yeah. When you're really fatigued is your heart rate will be harder to get up. Mm-hmm. That's why I used to do before power back in like 2007 or something before I had a power meter, I would use heart rate based training. And some days you just couldn't get your heart rate there. It's frustrating. Yeah. It's so frustrating. But so now that I have both, I can see, I can, I can do an interval, but my heart rate will be 10 or 10 beats less. And that's not because I am, uh, less fit. It's, I mean, more fit. It's because I'm more tired. Yeah. So if I take days off, my heart rate will go all the way up to 190. If I don't have a day off, if I'm really tired, it'll only go to 170. That's the difficulty the same with heart rate. It's so variable. So things that you can look at while you're doing it. So everything we just said about power PR. And one thing, though, is about indoor rides is you're not going to get those power PRs as often. You still will, but not as often because you're doing what we're prescribing to you. Yep. So when we bring an outdoor rides, that's a really good way to then see if I go all out for 43 seconds because I'm in this group ride yeah, or Being able like to that. look at outdoor race files is going to be a game changer. Yeah, outdoor race files, yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, the other thing is I look at it, how am I feeling at the same intensity factor? So if I have an hour workout and before an IF of 0.92, I mean, that's a, that's a hard workout, yeah. was hard. And the next time I do a workout that's similar, that's 0.92 or 0.91, and it's easier, I'm like, oh, I'm getting fitter. So perception and relative to IF? RPE, yeah. So um, for the same kind of workouts, like right now I'm in week four of cyclocross. I think, Chad, you're there too. Mm-hmm. So it's a recovery week. And this last week, week three, I was doing harder workouts and I was getting through them. So the Thursday workouts, they're kind of like you go really hard for 30 seconds and then you kind of ramp up above yeah, FTP. Kind of start efforts. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Those ones, so every every Thursday, they actually got harder. And the percentage of FTP, I think it went all the way up to 150 for like... Yeah, for the initial 30-second sprint. Yeah, <laughs> so it's, yeah. It was, I was going like 380 or something or more than that. Higher. But I noticed, so that first one I did, I barely got through it. And by the third week, I was actually... I was barely getting through it again, but it was a lot, lot harder. Yeah. So that shows me that I'm probably going to get an FTP bump later on, or at least be better at those... 30 second efforts, sure. which I, I think I am, which you probably haven't trained in the past. So that'll be, yeah, that'll, that'll make a big difference yeah, actually, on so the cyclocross courses. Although that's a 30 second effort, the whole interval was four minutes. And I just on my, on my ride, like 40 miles into my 60 mile ride, I did 378 for 445 or something. Hmm. So that was good for me. I think that yeah, would be a power PR, although I don't have the software to tell me if that was power <laughs> PR. So I'm going to build it. But anyways, that's thanks to those kind of doing those four yeah. minute intervals. 
And Joe, you mentioned something, uh, assessing variation or consistency of power or cadence. Um, I really don't, so like my cadence, I like to keep it within a certain range. It took a, uh, and when I first started riding, which really wasn't too long ago, relatively speaking, but when I first started riding, it took me a while to nail in my cadence, but now I don't really pay it. It's more like something I look at in retrospect and, um, I don't specifically train at lower cadences. I always try to be racing and training at that cadence. Well, this goes back to course specifics. So mm-hmm. if, you, if you know you're going to be on a course, you know, if, a, if an important race has a sort of climb that's going to force you into a high force, low cadence sort of spin, it's best you train that way. Not Get all the time, but you yep. need to be faced with some of that so that you know that you can do it. Uh, how much time you devote to it, you know, depends on how pivotal that section of the race is. But there is, like I said earlier, there's a lot of information, especially with mountain biking, but uh, with road riding too, criteriums, whatever, depending on the course, that that the way your cadence relates to your power output can be a crucial make or break if uh, if it's you know a pivotal segment of the race. This ties it, you, great transition, Chad, into Stewie's question from Twitter. He says, hearing you guys talk about the one by on episode 62, how do you find it for road use regarding the cadence jumps being too big? Thank you. I just did it. So I used my cross bike with the row tires for uh, a long ride and had a big climb and a big descent. And uh, I had a, I didn't have our 1042 cassette. I was using my wife's wheel because of tires and stuff. Yeah. And I had a 1132. 36, right? Is it 36? Okay. 36 on it. So the 1136 was just like a compact 28. It's really close to that. Yeah. So for climbing, fine. Yep. And I didn't even need anything extra for anything that we were doing. Mm-hmm. The 11, so it was a, it's 40 in the front, 11 in the back. That was not enough on the downhills mm. uh, with some guys with standards with 11s, and they would just pull away. But that's at like, I would spin out at 33 miles per hour. So for me, for training, I, uh, it didn't matter. Like, yeah, which I think with the 10 right now on our cro- cycle cross bikes, that, that jump from 11 to 10, it's one tooth, but it makes a big difference when you're down that low. And I think the eyes at 120 RPM, I'm going 36. That's about right. Yeah. Like mid to high thirties at a reasonably quick spin. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. And that's with the 10, uh, 42. And then we have a 40 tooth chain ring up front. And the one thing I will say, it's it's not the smoothest shifting. I mean, there are big gear changes. You know, yep. you're going from one cog to a substantially bigger cog. So it's not it's not smooth. It's not like you know if you're running an eleven twenty one and it just ticks down almost. You almost don't feel it. Yeah. So that that is a small downside, but one that's well worth it. I didn't yeah. notice it. At yeah. All. And to be honest, if you are comfortable operating with an 85 to 105 RPM, mm-hmm. any type of a change there will be well within. The yeah. gear change will be well within that range. The other so. thing is I, I use the dropper post on road. Man, so when I drop my saddle down, my mm-hmm. saddle height is the same. It's a little bit higher than Chad's saddle height yeah. after I drop. <laughs> yeah. And that difference in weight descending, I have never felt. It's amazing. If this is what you guys feel, like I can't. Because so Jonathan and Chad, yours are lower. Yep. It's not scary at all. Like when it's down there lower, it's that's why five times less scary. Yeah. Descending. Everybody always thinks that top tube tucking is terrifying, and. Once you get into the right position, it's actually extremely comfortable because your center of gravity is so low. You know, yeah. you, you feel more balanced. So, um, so yeah, yeah, absolutely. The, the one thing, too, on Stewie's question really quick, we had this question on Facebook that popped up and relates to the gearing. And um, people, uh, somebody said that we were wondering why people, like, didn't understand why or why it was wrong to have low gearing, like uh, why, why we thought people thought that way. 
And we understand the fact that there's a weird, you know, there's this weird concept out there that if you use low gears that you're less of a man or something like that. Yeah. And it's so ridiculous. That's um, old cycling stuff. That's, it is. Yeah. And for us, our goal is, and this is with us personally, but also with everybody else, we just want to make people faster. And if that's us or somebody else. So we give ourselves with that lower gearing, we give ourselves the option uh, in the context of cyclocross to test out if it is faster to run up something or to ride it. And I know that the reason people run up a lot of things is because their gearing doesn't allow them to. But in some cases, you can ride that if you have lower gearing and it ends up being quicker. Not every case. We don't blanket anything. We mm -hmm. test things and then we figure it out. We just have given ourselves the option, which... We did a course a couple of weeks back and, yeah. and I, I ran it one time and I rode it every other time because the difference between the one time that I ran it and the f first time that I rode it was was substantial enough. I was, we're I was, talking I was gapping people who were staying very close to me, yeah. but if I rode it, I was... My, my, or I wasn't Two gapping them if I ran. But it's and, only a, if I wrote it, I was gapping them. And these people, a couple seconds, yeah. but it was something. And these people are running it fast. It's not like oh, these yeah, people yeah. were walking. They yeah. were sprinting up it. So yep. In fact, it was the make or break. It's what yep. allowed me to pull away from the guy. Me and him were trading the lead back and forth for the, like the final three laps of a race. It was the make or break. Well, too, if it's, I think that was like nine laps, that thing. Yeah. Like so that. two seconds for eight, 16 yeah, seconds. Yeah, I could have applied Man. it every time. I mean, there were other factors that figured into it and mm -hmm. he would close gaps on different spots, but it just happened that that climb was toward the end of the lap so that yeah. all I had to do was punch it one time, get that gap, hold that gap for, you know, three, four minutes tops. And that was yeah, the difference between even victory six, and... Did you even beat him by 16 seconds? Oh, I ended up... I mean, him. like if you didn't do that, you, beat it, him you by might more not than have... That. Oh. Yeah, I think because once I got that gap, yeah, I realized he wasn't going to close it. And he kind of shut it down a yeah. bit. Yeah. So I guess that the the point is just because tradition says something, or just because it's something that's understood, or you feel pressured to fall into, uh, question that stuff. Like always, be searching for whatever makes you faster. And if a gearing change makes or allows you to to be faster, that's great. Yeah, I understand the romantic nature of tradition, but totally. some of it is just lazy. I mean, you gotta you gotta move with the times. Yeah. Just remember that there are still people that believe that shaving your legs the night before a race slows you down because the hair or popping through your skin. that showering after a ride causes you to gain weight because it's, yeah. it's water <laughs> yeah. back in your cells. I mean, there's some ridiculous yeah. notions that are still clinging somehow. Yep, exactly. Uh, Lars' question uh, via Slow Twitch. Mm -hmm. For next year, my plan will probably be focused on a half Ironman with a tough course. I really want to improve the bike leg. As it's in the first weekend of July, I have 35 weeks to work with, uh, eight base, eight build and eight specialty. That'll leave 10 to 11 extra weeks. And this is covering a topic that we're seeing pop up all the time. So Lars context will be unique to him, but these principles hopefully will be, will apply to more. He says, should I do sweet spot base, um, as sort of a pre-base so I can start with a more decent FTP or should I repeat the specialty phase? Any other ideas? So, um, Lars, let me preface this by saying, um, our plans are, our base build specialty typically takes 28 weeks You know, we have 12 weeks devoted to base and then an eight week build and an eight week specialty. So that's common. Um, it, it's changes things when you're building toward a couple different events you know, you go about it a different way, but a lot of people just build towards, toward a single event, especially common with full distance triathlons, Ironman. So with half iron distance and full iron distance, especially base, base, base. This goes for basically any athlete, any endurance athlete, that base conditioning is vital. And that, that, uh, 
we get a lot of questions about can I skip base? You know, mm-hmm. that's that's another one that we're getting. Um, if you're crunched for time, you know, which ones do you skip? I almost never recommend skipping base. That's that's fundamental fitness. It's called base for a reason. This is these are base conditioning aspects that you build upon. So if they're not there, well, what do you build upon? Mm-hmm. Um, so really, in your case, doing a pre base as as you called it, that sweet spot base, not a bad idea. If if that's something that you feel will elevate your FTP, and then you start your regular base with a slightly higher FTP, nothing wrong with that. Um, but I do recommend that anytime you have time to fill its base, whether you're returning to some low intensity traditional base, whether you're um, repeating sweet spot base back to back, which you know there might be better ways to go about it, but that's not even a bad route. So if you have time to fill before your first A race, you mm-hmm. take extra base. But if you're going to be racing, maybe you have two peaks during the year. Yeah. Let's say he had That's one. That's when things change in April and then one in July. Or so a rebuild, August. exactly. So you, so in in that case, the base fitness is already there. There's no reason to revisit it. So so you're not really extending base. And you Basically, can't add an extra base phase in there because your race is coming up. You're yeah. crunched on yeah. time. Yeah, that's when we that's when we go back to the rebuild. So just four weeks of you know rebuilding a little fitness. But what does rebuild to, mean? Because you say rebuild, but we don't have a rebuild plan. Yeah, so so we have base build and specialty. A rebuild is just revisiting the build. Whether you do the whole thing, four weeks of it, the first four weeks, the latter four weeks, there are different contingencies that steer you one way or the other. Um, but basically, we're just revisiting the same build plan that you used already. So and someone would go... Or maybe a different one that applies to so, if you're changing So cracks. someone would go base, build, specialty, have their race, then go back to build. Yep. And you said if they have and less... Go ahead. Before they build, it depends how much... It depends what that gap is. If they have time to take a, an easy week or two and they need a little bit of a refresher, a little break from you know the consistency, the intensity, et cetera. They did an Ironman. Yeah, exactly. So they're not going to jump right back into build. That's, that's, that's too intense. That mm-hmm. In that case, I would say go back to a couple weeks of something like traditional base, something where you're just staying consistent. And then consistent, go back into build. And then revisit the build yeah. and then re-specialize. So you said if... Re-race. If, if someone has four weeks... You said they might take the first four weeks of the build or the last four, and you yeah, said there's some reasons. Typically, what are the reasons? I just if you're carrying a lot of fatigue, then I recommend revisiting the first four weeks because they're gentler. If you're feeling, you know, you're ready to rip it, feeling good, then you can jump into the latter four weeks. And the both those four weeks only have a one week taper, right? Before the. Um, so the first four weeks, well, neither of them have a taper exactly. They just have recovery weeks. Yeah, that's, yeah, so okay, three weeks so on, then a recovery, recovery week. But yeah. they both include that final fourth yeah. week. It's yeah, not like a two. Recovery. Yeah, okay. Yeah. Because especially plans at the end, they have a two-week yep. taper. Yep. But then, um, so, so with Lars in particular, he's talking about sweet spot base. So this leads me to assume, and he actually did reply to me on slow twitch, that he's time-constrained. Um, so that's, that's when a different uh, set of questions enter into the mix. So if you've got a lot of time, you can go the traditional base route. I have gotten to the point where unless you have 10 hours a week to devote specifically to the bike... I don't think the traditional base is a great way to go unless you're a new athlete and six to eight hours of working at 60% of threshold is enough stimulus to provide improvement for a lot of athletes. It's not. That's really why hard mentally too. Uh-huh. It is. Oh yeah, it is. But that's why we almost always steer everybody towards sweet spot based because, because as I've said many times, you have to compensate for the lack of volume with intensity. That's just how it, how it goes. Do we know that, traditional base, let's say you can do 10 hours, that that would then be better than just doing 10 hours of sweet spot. Um, the only thing, the only thing I would question there is, you know, how fit is the athlete? Uh, that sweet spot base, uh, it depends. I mean, they could see a different level of response from one or the other based on what they're bringing to the table. That's what I was getting at is that 
depending on like Coggin said before too, that sweet spot work on base training is superior to traditional base. I hope yeah. I'm not, I saw him write that once. I hope I'm not misquoting him. He might, his, his ch- views change pound but. for pound though. I mean, when you start to get below 10 hours and you're down to eight hour training weeks, I can't, I can't in good conscience ever recommend a traditional base approach. Yeah. It's just tough to get, bring about the same adaptations so, so with then, that lower intensity approach with less volume. Volume so then, is key. So then why that. do we have a low volume traditional base and a mid volume traditional base? That's because that's what people wanted way back when. So once I've got a, a training plans development tool that makes it easy for me to go in there and modify plans, <laughs> that was wink, a wink, wink. <laughs> once I can do that, there will be different changes that the low volume tr- traditional base plan is basically will become, or we'll just use it as a rehab plan rehab, for a yeah. plan for people who are or just Brand off new. the couch and have no conditioning. It whatsoever. could also act, act as a supplemental plan to and that's, if you're that's doing a lot thing. of stuff. Outside. It's a really good transition into a rebuild. Or if you just need a couple weeks away from things, you just want to take a break from intensity and and and, and the tougher work. That low volume traditional base is an excellent fix. And the mid volume one. Mid volume goes back to the whole. If it's enough stimulus, then it can be applied. You know, maybe it's seven or eight hours, but you're used to writing two or three hours. Well, that's that's probably enough to to yield improvement. But why wouldn't you just um, have them do sweet spot based then? Good question. I mean, there's between the two. I would still steer people with that minimal amount of time to sweet spot. Yeah, yeah, yeah that makes sense. So I'm gonna try to wrap this up into something concise. Three different scenarios, maybe two different scenarios. First one is I have an A race and it's a long way from a long way away from me. So I have enough time to fit in a base build specialty and then some. Uh, If you have that situation, it's probably best to focus on building up your base training that you have. Now, if you are in a situation with multiple peaks, then you would want to do a rebuild. And that rebuild just consists of giving yourself a quick breather, maybe a week uh, of something that's less intense, perhaps less structured, mentally give yourself a break. And then you, if you, you come back into build, and if you need something that's a little more gentle, you hit the first four weeks of your build. A little more intense, latter four weeks of your build, then you specialize again, uh, leading up to your second peak. And then the third scenario that you would have is one where you have not enough time to complete a full base build and specialty, right? So in other words, your race is coming up too soon, less than 28 weeks. Yeah. So in that case, I don't worry so much about the high end specialty fitness Mm -hmm. just have them do uh, 12 weeks of sweet spot base. So they're most of their bases, almost all of their bases are covered and then get as far through the build as they can, leaving time for either a recovery week or some form of taper. So the specialty is the gravy and we would basically once <laughs> yeah. again. Yeah. 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 I mean, we start, we start with basics and then we build on those basics and then we fine tune everything. But if you don't have time to fine tune, that's the first thing that goes. So the only time where we could, we might skip base is if you have a really high amount of fitness coming in. Yeah, exactly. So for example, let's say cross season ended December 2nd and then road season is going to start February, mid February or March 1st. Is, so I, I'm really close, but I'm already really fit coming yeah, in. So, so right there, you're already carrying a lot of your base fitness into it. It's not like it went away all of a sudden. You need to repeat the cycle every time just because. So if you've got the base fitness, if you've got that, that base level conditioning, then there's no reason you can't jump directly into a build. Yeah. And two, so it's more like, and, and because you don't have the amount of time. Right. So if I had more yes. time, like I'd, if I'd you've got time to repeat the, season, the cycle, then yeah. you got a new elevated FTP ideally. And you start base with a higher FTP yeah. than the, the season prior. Yep. Cause just That's because better. I have, let's say I'm, you know, I'm at the end of an Ironman season. I did an Ironman in November. I have base fitness then, but my next race is until July. I'd want to start the base over. Absolutely. I wouldn't just say, yeah, absolutely. And, and one thing that I would advise people on is if you can, uh, 
give yourself the opportunity to drop back down to base at some point. If you just try to, it's super tempting, especially these days because we have cross season, then road season, then mountain bike season. If you're a triathlete, you have races to pick from at any point throughout the year. Mm-hmm. So it, it's tempting at times to just try to bridge between peak to peak and yeah, just yeah. not drop down. But when you do drop down with that elevated FTP, in other words, drop down to base again with that mm-hmm. elevated FTP, it's awesome. You're able to really kind of recalibrate things and build yeah, a like strong foundation. Your whole foundation has lifted. You're starting yep. from a higher level of fitness. Yeah. yeah. So if you can, that's the best. And then in two yeah. years or three years, you are so much fitter than the guy who just tried to like do VO2 max all oh, year yeah. round. All year. Yeah. yeah. If yeah. you can maintain multi-year and, consistency <laughs> yeah. and incorporate a fair amount of base with each of those years or seasons, uh, you'll see uh, long-lasting, deep benefits. Right. Uh, last questions are going to come from Liko. Uh, I hope I say, I hope I'm saying your name correctly. He says, is it okay to take a midway break 10 to 15 minutes when doing a three plus hour long ride? Uh, he says, how is, or, um, how will this break or the pause and activity impact TSS? Uh, so Liko, it depends what that break consists of. You know, if, uh, you're looking for, uh, a break in and of itself isn't the problem. And what it does to TSS is just pauses your TSS accumulation. So it won't impact that either. If you're going to do the whole ride and you happen to segment it, TSS is still going to add up to the same thing. Um, it might actually preserve the quality of the ride. So if you're kind of running yourself or grinding yourself into the ground and a 10 or 15 minute break revives you to the point where you can keep the productivity of the rest of that workout high, then absolutely take mm-hmm. that break. Um, if you're looking for something like slow fiber fatigue, which takes a lot of consistent effort where you don't really take a break, it could impact that a little bit. But again, if it helps maintain the rest of the quality of the ride, it's not something that's going to ba- change the nature of it all that much, if at all. Yeah. I do like, though, for, especially for Ironman racing, no breaks at all or half Ironman. Yeah, I mean, you always got to keep your event in mind and know what you're, what you're building toward and yeah. you know, gear your, your psychology as well as your physiology uh, accordingly. There's a lot to be said for that, for sure. All right, that covers it uh, for this week. You can submit your questions to us at trainerroad.com slash podcast. There's a form on there that you can fill out and submit your questions. And we dig through as many as we can each week. And we put uh, some ones into the list that we feel like are going to make for good listening for all of you. Uh, you can also use the hashtag ask trainer road on different social channels. Find us on Snapchat at trainer road, and you can send in your brief questions there. You've been doing better with that, by the way. Thank you very much. <laughs> um, and we can answer them quick. Um, in some cases, quickly on there. Uh, so thanks for submitting the questions, everybody. Keep training. We'll talk to you next week. Thanks, everybody. Bye-bye.